Today on Blue 58, we've got a pretty good idea who's going to be a contender to make the Packers roster this year. But every year, somebody unexpected makes a run. Here's my best guess as to who that could be this year. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. It's been a while since we checked in and saw how you were doing. Still a bit of a wild time out there. So how you doing? Consider this me asking you. Let me know how you're doing and how we can be serving you better with content during these unusual times. Maybe these unusual times are coming to a bit of an end. There's some word out there and my colleague Tex Western uh, has a write-up on it at acmepackingcompany.com. There's there's some talk out there about training camps opening, some states easing restrictions a little bit. I don't want to get into whether or not that's a good idea What I will say is I'm skeptical as to whether or not it's going to happen on the schedule. The NFL seems to be putting out there for a couple of reasons. First, there's a bunch of different moving parts here uh, that are outside the NFL's control. First, just a bunch of different states have to sign off on teams being able to practice before anybody can really practice. You're not going to let 20 teams, just to pick a number out of a hat, uh, from the league start practicing, and the rest are just out of luck. And you're also not going to move the teams from those states to other states and just let them go. You're going to get everybody practicing at once, or you're not going to have anybody practicing at all. So I think that's that's one big hurdle for the NFL to overcome here. The second big thing that is only sort of outside the NFL's control is the players' union. They're going to have a say here on safety on how this exactly is going to work because let's be honest it's their workforce uh, that's going through this whole labor situation this is a labor deal whether or not teams go back to work so the nfl players union is going to have a seat at the table here trying to figure out exactly how they're going to guarantee that people are safe and what they do if and it seems fair to say when somebody contracts this virus. What do you do? The real question that I have is, is what do you do if someone has symptoms and either can't or won't or just doesn't get tested? How do you handle things then? That is a question I am glad that I do not have to answer. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of times that I'm not glad I'm not the boss of anybody. Uh, other than myself and occasionally my son, though that seems to be changing a lot as he crosses into double-digit months old. Uh, he he is recognizing the authority less and less. I'm just glad I don't have to make decisions for anybody other than my family. This is going to be another tough situation for, for leaders to navigate. And it's going to be, I guess, at the, the very basest level, another interesting data point for us to see how the Packers handle this situation with an especially young coaching staff. Maybe not young as much as inexperienced in the roles in which they're in. Just some thoughts. Uh, There's there's a long way to go, I guess, is where I would land on things. Before we get too far, I want to let everybody know uh, that if you want to hear more of me talking about the Green Bay Packers, you can check out a recent episode of the PackerNet podcast with Ryan Schlipp. The Pack Daddy himself had me in for a... An interview this week, we had a good time talking about the 2019 season, the 2020 season, podcasting in general. 
Uh, so if you if you want to get an additional dose of my thoughts on the, the Green Bay Packers, that is something that you can check out, and I will throw a link to that in your show notes on this episode as well. Um, so go ahead and check that out. A really, really big props to Ryan, by the way, um, for the show that he does. It's enough work for me to get a show out twice a week, three times a week in season. Uh, he does it every single day. That is uh, quite a commitment, and it's very impressive uh, that he gets those shows out, much less that they're as good as they are. And he does a really great job there. I'm a fan of what he does. So check that out. I uh, was on that this week. Let's talk some some perhaps underappreciated or unheralded un- unheralded members of the of the Packers roster. Set up top in the intro to the show that every year there are some unexpected additions to the roster. And I think that is a relatively fair assessment. Uh, I think last year you, you'd say a guy like Chandon Sullivan, maybe not super heralded, but kind of comes on strong late in training camp, uh, ends up on the roster and plays some meaningful time. I don't know if we've got anybody this year who's going to make that kind of leap, but I think the possibility is always there. And if you look at some of the positions that we'll be looking at, I think it becomes even a little bit more likely. So depending on how you define sleeper, you could end up with a much larger list of players here. But I'm just using the word sleeper to talk about guys who maybe seem right now like they're on the outside looking in, or who maybe you just don't know all that much about. Had I not just done a big piece on young edge rushing prospects, there might be a couple more on this list. But for right now, we've got four, I think, sleeper players to make the roster. First one will probably not be a super big surprise to you if you are a regular listener to this podcast. We'll probably spend the least amount of time on him. But I would like to talk about Patrick Taylor, the running back. Six foot one, 217 pounds. He played behind Daryl Henderson for two years at Memphis, then missed almost all of his final season there with a foot injury. Why should you care about Patrick Taylor? I don't know if you heard, but the Packers are apparently a running team now, or that at least they want to construct their roster in a way that leans a little bit more run-heavy than they have in the past. There are going to be opportunities for running backs to contribute on this roster, on the deeper portions of this roster. In addition... Running back tends to be a high turnover position. So even if somebody doesn't make the active roster, I think you got to pay especially careful attention to players who are on the practice squad, especially if they play a position like running back or offensive line, because chances are pretty good that they're going to end up on the active roster at some point this season. To me, Patrick Taylor looks like the sort of guy who could be the next Maybe Jamal Williams or James Starks, a more power-oriented running back who's a little less shifty, maybe a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more upright, uh, relies on power and explosion as opposed to shiftiness and overall top-end speed. Patrick Taylor sort of fits the bill there. So I think keep an eye on him as we head into the 2020 season, whatever that may be, perhaps sooner now rather than later. Next up on my list of sleepers is Chris Barnes. And I think whether it's Barnes or somebody else at the same position, I think you could pencil in a couple guys kind of on this same track. So I'm going with Barnes, but there are a couple other guys, especially some of the some of the safety tweeners that you could pencil in here. Barnes is six foot two, two hundred and twenty-nine pounds out of UCLA. The the 
consummate tweener linebacker. And I don't mean the linebacker safety hybrid type. I mean, is he a big thumper linebacker or is he the smaller, more coverage linebacker? Some estimates put his weight as high as 235. I've seen him as light as the low 220s. What is he physically? Nobody really seems to know. And it's weird that you can't get more accurate measurements, but that's an entirely different ball of wax. He played 34 career games at UCLA, which is always a a pretty good indication of the quality of player he is. And as of late November 2019, he was among the nation's leaders in both passes defensed and tackles for loss among linebackers. Not a bad statistical resume there either. So why should you care about Chris Barnes? We've talked recently about opportunities among young edge rushers, and I think there are similar opportunities at inside linebacker too. Look at the the Packers' top four inside linebackers right now. Really top three, and then Curtis Bolton too, just because we liked him from last year. Your top four are Christian Kirksey, Kamal Martin, the fifth-round pick, Ty Summers, last year's seventh-round pick, Uh, who didn't play a ton on defense, and then Curtis Bolton. None, not one of those four guys played any snaps on defense for the Packers last year. Sure, Christian Kirksey has played in Mike Pettin's system before, but that was a while ago already, and he's coming off a serious injury. In fact, he's not alone there either. Three of the four of the players on that list also had major injuries last year. Kirksey did, Martin did, and Bolton did. Ty Summers is the only one who stayed completely healthy all last year. And despite all the Packers' problems at inside linebacker, he could never find his way onto the field for a single snap on defense. I don't think anything among this list of players should be considered a guarantee. Any one of those players could be a starter. Any one of those players could be off the roster by the end of August. I don't think that's a, a, that would be a big surprise either way. It'd be a little, probably the most surprising if they cut Kamal Martin just because he was a draft pick this year, but Brian Gutekunst has shown a willingness to move on from guys faster than Ted Thompson did. So really, like I said, nothing guaranteed to anybody. Barnes, to me, then, has a significant opportunity, and if he's willing to get things done on special teams, he could be the next Ty Summers-type player, guy who just comes in, uh, does his job in the preseason on defense, finds a, a spot on the roster because of his special teams contributions, and goes from there. The The thing he doesn't has go, have going from, for him is he's not quite the athlete that Summers was and is, but special teams is so frequently about hustle and want to and grit and all those coach speak sort of things that actually do kind of play a role on special teams that it's it's anybody's ball game any training camp and Barnes could be that guy sticking on defense the next guy I'd like to talk about is Deshaun Amos six foot tall six foot one depending on who you ask 190 pounds Originally an undrafted free agent out of East Carolina in 2017. He spent camp that year with the New York Giants, was cut, didn't sign on with anybody, ended up spending the last two seasons with the Calgary Stampeders. And that sounds pretty familiar. Yes, he was teammates with Reggie Bagleton. He was a Western Conference all-star for the Stampeders during his final season there, played very well. Why should you care, though, about a deep depth chart cornerback. I always argue that you should always keep high body count positions on your radar. So defensive backs, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, wide receiver, 
positions where you just need a lot of guys to fill out a roster. Even if you go absolutely minimal on offensive linemen, you're never going to keep less than what, seven, eight, even nine is not super unusual. That's a lot of bodies there, and somebody can can find a way to fit in. Same thing goes at defensive back. You need a lot of defensive backs on your roster to make things go, and that's especially true of the Packers. And it's going to remain true for the Packers because Mike Pettin actually said something very interesting at his news conference this past week. I think it was Friday. He admitted that he goes with uh, dime-heavy looks basically out of preference, not because that's the hand that the Packers dealt him, with their roster decisions, he just likes playing a lot of defensive backs. And it seems to have worked. The Packers were top 10 in DVOA and pass defense last year. That That's a pretty good result with that philosophy. But you need a lot of defensive backs to make it happen. And I think for a high body count position, cornerback is particularly unsettled right now. You've got Jair Alexander and Kevin King as your top two guys, then probably a gap. Then Chandon Sullivan, the next guy up, given that Tremont Williams seems to be Uh, just biding his time right now. The Packers don't seem super keen on bringing him back, but things could change. Then you've probably got another gap behind Chandon Sullivan and everybody else. Sure, you've got names mixed in there like Kadar Holman, a draft pick last year, but it's a pretty wide open field, and the Packers aren't just going to keep three. Somebody could step up and fill that void. Now, Amos doesn't have the world's greatest measurables. He ran high 4-4s in the 40-yard dash, but you don't necessarily need to be a blazer to get things done at cornerback either, especially if you're playing in the slot, if you're playing a little hybrid safety look, as the Packers have been known to do with guys like Chandon Sullivan and other other defensive backs with the, with the size to play both. So you never know. He seems like he could have a path to the roster here. And he's especially interesting to me because of the previous professional success that he's had. I like it when the Packers pick up guys that have at least gotten a look somewhere else. The Giants thought he was good enough to keep around in camp for an entire summer. The Stampeders thought he was worth uh, devoting a significant amount of playing time to. There is some merit to signing a guy who has caught on elsewhere, or at least hung around elsewhere before, giving him a look to see if you can falsify what other teams have done. That is, I think, a a decent enough strategy for acquiring anybody on your roster, much less a a position where you need a lot of guys. So I I think he's got a path there too. Finally, we'll round out with, I think, perhaps the strongest prospect from among these four, uh, but perhaps the least heralded. I'm talking about six foot six, three hundred seven pound Cody Conway. I'm really excited about Conway. Packers picked him up late last year. He spent training camp with the Titans last year. Was injured late, put on injured reserve, ultimately waived with an injury settlement. He was a 33 game starter at left tackle over four years at Syracuse. Ultimately played close to 3,000 snaps for the Orange, though he did go undrafted in the 2019 NFL Draft. Offensive line, like I said, is another high body count position. Plus, let's talk about swing tackle for a second. Who would you say is the Packers' top backup tackle right now? Probably Alex Light, right? The Packers were so confident in Alex Light last year that they signed Jared Veld here practically the second he unretired and tried to, to get him in there as an upgrade over Light after seeing him not play particularly well against the Kansas City Chiefs. The Packers need help beyond their starting tackles. Heck, the Packers could use probably a starting right tackle, given how you feel about Rick Wagner, depending how you feel about Rick Wagner. 
uh, they certainly, at, at the very least, could use some tackle depth. So there are going to be opportunities there. Let's also take a look at our criteria for offensive line prospects that we used evaluating guys in the NFL draft this spring. Athleticism, former multi-sport athletes, smallish tackles who can play guard, and I would also add guys who have long-term starting experience. Those are all criteria that help you identify good prospects. So throw that second to last one out there. He's big enough to play tackle. What do we know about Conway's athleticism? He's pretty darn good. An elite athlete, in fact, at a 9.17 relative athletic score. That's pretty darn good. Does he have a multi-sport background? He does. He was a four-year letter winner in basketball in high school, as well as being a two-way lineman on high school or in high school football. Was he a long-term starter at Syracuse? Yep, like I said, he almost played 3,000 snaps at tackle for the Orange over four years there. He could be the next guy to fill that sort of Alex Light role, the guy the Packers count on as their top backup at both left and right tackle. He has the size, he has the athleticism to do it, and he plays a position where the Packers have precious few bodies that you'd feel comfortable sticking into a a starting or significant contributor role on the offensive line. Those are my four sleepers. Let me know who you think is a sleeper to make the Packers roster. There are some more out there. Maybe we'll dip back into this topic at some point in the future. Now for something completely different. I've decided to accelerate our look at Take Your Eye Off the Ball. We're going to be doing one chapter per episode here until we finish this this thing out, just to spice things up a little bit here in the most unusual offseason I think we've seen in a while. So starting with chapter six, we're going to go one chapter per episode. Chapter 6 is all about the offensive line, and I loved how Kerwin started this one. Quote, if you were to walk into a room and see an NFL offensive lineman standing in front of you, he'd be impossible to miss. But somehow, if you put five of them together on a football field, they can go virtually unnoticed. I like that a lot. This was, to me, a pretty good chapter, but a hard chapter to talk about. To me, it read the most like an instruction manual of any chapter so far. How do you look at the offensive line? Well, here are some suggestions. Here are some things that you should be looking at. That makes it tough to talk about conceptually and makes it come across more like a series of observations. So I would like to take a few of those and see if we can add some context. So here's a few of his observations and and, um, some additional thoughts about how they may apply to the NFL and the Packers in particular. He said, Kerwin that is, Pat Kerwin, the author, a team pays its left tackle big money for one reason, his ability to pass block by himself. That is generally true, but it's changed a little bit since this book was published in 2015, and I think Kerwin would be the first to admit that. The biggest tackle cap hit in the league right now is Trenton Brown with the Raiders. He's a right tackle, clocking in at just over $21 million. Two of the top five tackle cap hits in the NFL right now per SpotTrack.com are right tackles. Three of the top 13 are. It's not automatically true anymore that left tackle is always going to be the highest paid player on your offensive line. And a lot of different factors go into that, none of the which are really worth explaining at length here, but it's just it's just not true anymore that left tackle is automatically the highest paid player on your offensive line. Tackles are going to make more money than guards who are going to make more money than centers, but right or left means less than it used to. I thought it was interesting that he called out the short shuttle as an indicator of good guard play. The Packers have been known to target this at almost every position, and it's one of the indicators, I think, that allows them to work that tackle to guard pipeline so well. If you can find a tackle 
who can pass block in space, but is a little bit undersized, but still has the athleticism to move side to side pretty well, chances are he's going to be a pretty good guard. And your short shuttle and your three-cone drill are going to be things that help you identify that. So that's something the Packers have leveraged pretty well over really the last 20 to 30 years. Kerwin credits Alex Gibbs as one of the innovators and inventors of the zone blocking scheme or technique. This is something that's almost, I think, ubiquitous league-wide now. Kerwin kind of downplayed it a little bit. I would I'd push back on that a little bit. I think zone blocking is pretty much what teams do now, by and large. If, if it's not zone blocking it's exclusively, it's more like an adapted zone blocking scheme. But basically, everything is some form of zone blocking now. And uh, I think tracking the the evolution of that scheme is kind of fascinating. There is a Packers connection to that. Alex Gibbs worked for the Kansas City Chiefs in 1993 and 1994 as their offensive line coach. One of his co-workers at that time was Mike McCarthy, who was also in Kansas City in 1993 and 1994. And it's probably no coincidence then that Mike McCarthy brought zone blocking to Green Bay and that the Packers were especially zone-blocking heavy early on in his Packers tenure. It's interesting, I think, always to track how ideas spread throughout the league. Kerwin argued, and I must reluctantly agree with him, that there is no good stat right now for offensive linemen. That is true. There is no good single number for offensive linemen, but we are working on it. I've toyed about a lot with my penalties and sacks per starter snaps number, and I've got some tweaks that I'm not 100% ready to unveil yet, Um, but we are tweaking some of our data sources there to track where those sacks and blown blocks and all those things come from, and that's a big reason that there's no good stat for offensive linemen because very few people can agree on who is to blame for things. This is a good example or good opportunity to talk about some of those data sources, actually. So previously, we had gotten our sack data, which which offensive linemen are giving up sacks from Stats LLC via the Washington Post. And that worked really well for a while, but I started comparing them to some other databases and saw that they counted their sacks way lower than almost everybody else. So now I've started to transition that data to Sports Information Solutions who also tracks who is responsible for sacks given up and a whole host of other things. But their data seems a little bit more reliable, and their data is also used by football outsiders, who I trust as a reliable source of data. So in trying to bring those things into alignment, I've tweaked what I've tried to do to bring it more into line with what other good football analytics people are doing. But you can see the problem there. If we can't agree on who is to blame for things, how can we reasonably come to some sort of understanding on a number that's supposed to encapsulate an offensive lineman's performance and have it mean something? If you try to track somebody's stats and your stats are different from everybody else's stats, you've got a problem. Either you're way smarter than everybody else or you're just wrong. But even if you are right and you are just smarter than everybody else, if your number just has to stand by itself, it, it's hard to use because it's, it's just in a vacuum. 
And that's not a good way to use stats either because you want to be able to put context around things. So his lament that there is no good single stat for offensive linemen is one that I share. Finally, speaking of stats, of questionable reliability, but none, nonetheless noteworthy significance, he talks about the wonderlick, specifically answering the question, do offensive linemen have to be smarter than defensive linemen? I don't want to take a position on that. I have friends on both sides of that line. But he does cite the wonderlick as a potential gauge of people's intelligence. He does express some reservations about the wonderlick, and I think there are some good reasons to to be concerned about that. But if you just look at that number, and if you look at our wonderlick database available at thepowersweep.com, link in your show notes, eight of the top 30 scores, or put differently, everybody we've got in our database with a score of 30 or higher are offensive linemen. The top 30 being everybody with a score of 30 or plus, 30 or higher. Eight of those 30 players are offensive linemen, higher than any other position group. Quarterback right after them. Defensive line actually surprisingly high too. The Packers just happen to have some some smart offensive linemen, two of whom, in fact, went to Northwestern, Dean Lowry and Tyler Lancaster. Intelligence is a funny thing in football. You definitely need it. Um, it's harder and harder for people to gauge it, though there are some in- intriguing results for, for how people have totaled that. Uh, but that's a, a discussion for a different day because that's all I've got for you on this episode. Uh, next time, we're going to start taking a look at some of the Packers' upcoming 2020 opponents. Dates notwithstanding, they are going to play these play- these teams. So let's start taking a look at those teams starting next Thursday. And maybe we'll sprinkle in some of your questions too if we get a couple good ones out there. Uh, if you did enjoy this episode, if you think somebody else would benefit from it, uh, go ahead and share it. Uh, help us expand the conversation we're having about the Green Bay Packers because that ultimately is how we're going to accomplish our goal of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.